0: Quadcast Nation, welcome back! I am so excited to have you guys back in the mix. We have a doozy episode with Doctor Berry, but before we tell you about little housekeeping items, for those that missed our approaches to low-carbon ketogenic diets, we are doing a replay. You could purchase that at about thirty dollars. Links are in the show notes. It was with Ivor Cummins. It was with Doctor Paul Mason. It was with joy kitty and there was knowledge being thrown around all over the place science was being dropped not microphones knowledge i don't exactly know what that means but yes you guys want to get the replays the links will be in the show notes all right let's just jump into this episode we got dr ken Berry, and this guy is a legend he tells you how it is he, We talk about his journey with low-carbon keto and how it transformed his life, how it transformed his patient's life. And he's the author of the book, Lies My Doctor Told Me, which is fantastic. It pushes the envelope and saying, like, are a lot of the things that we've been told, where's the evidence to back that up? Is it based on any sound science? And whether it's talking about cholesterol, where it's talking about the sun and vitamin D, we dive into some of these issues, and especially in light of COVID-19, where some of these things have been controversially brought up. And so, yeah, he's a he's a legend. His YouTube channel has got the same population of Nairobi. It's crazy. This guy's a baller. So yeah, I'm really excited for you guys to hear this. So honestly, without further ado, let's jump on it. Dr. Cam Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm cordial Karamantay. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients and their families because inefficiencies, overwork and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost effective, dignified and just for everyone involved. Ladies and gentlemen, Quadcast Nation, we got a mega guest today. I am so honored to have Ken Berry on the show. Ken, I haven't introduced you yet, but what I love about you the most is the fact that you are fully able and willing to shake up the establishment. You don't care who you're in front of, but it's all about the message. And this is something I admire and respect tremendously. So Ken, welcome to the show, my friend.
1: Thanks, Doc. It's a pleasure being with you.
0: Absolutely. So I think the easiest way to just jump into it is just to tell us your story. So your story on how you got introduced to low-carb keto and your journey.
1: Yeah. So what really brought me to this, I was allopathically trained, classically trained at a state university, did a family medicine residency, uh, accelerated. I got done a year fast. And the first few years of practice, I didn't give two thoughts to nutrition never did I consider that. If you came into my office and you were morbidly obese, I would tell you to join Weight Watchers and join the gym. It's easy, dude. You just got to move more and eat less, burn more than you eat. Duh. It's simple math. It's the first law of thermodynamics. I used to say that stuff on a daily basis. And then a few years into my practice, I started getting fat and I started getting pre-diabetic and I started getting uh, rosacea, joint pain, stiffness, fatigue, Borderline diagnosable depression and anxiety just it was that was just a miserable mess, and it was when I got my labs back and I saw that my hemoglobin A1C was six point one. I was like, "What is going on, man? I mean, I I know I eat some junk food, but all my life I've been a very slender guy, right? And now all of a sudden I'm morbidly obese. I, I'm six foot three. I weighed at my heaviest two hundred and ninety seven pounds. Mm-hmm. One day I got short of breath tying my shoes getting ready for an er shift, and i'm like this has got to stop i'm pre-diabetic i can't even tie my damn shoes without getting short of breath what's going on and so i went up in the attic and got down all my nutrition notes from med school and and you'll probably chuckle hearing me describe it like that because actually what i was bringing down was a paperback book that was about three-eighths of an inch (laughs) thick and about i don't know 50 pages of notes we had had one class of nutrition the second year of med school that was one day a week for half a semester. That was our nutrition. And as you remember, we were taught very well if someone had third degree burns over 60% of their body, we were very good at keeping them hydrated and, and you know using uh, an IV to feed them. We were trained very well at that. Or if you were unconscious for two months in the ICU, I could replace your protein, your fats, all that stuff. But when it came to the care and feeding of just a normal person, who walks around on the street, has a job, has a spouse, has a dog. I had no idea what they should eat. I can literally sum up the entirety of my medical school nutrition education in three phrases Mm. that I was taught for a normal person. Number one, eat lots of whole grains. Number two, avoid saturated fat. And number three, jog. And so I thought, you know, I went over my nutrition notes. I thought, okay. So for the next month or two, I ate tons of fruit and vegetables and lots of whole grain and I didn't eat any junk at all and I stopped drinking the Mountain Dew that I'd lived on all through residency and I started jogging two or three times a week and at the end of those two months I'd gained five more pounds Hmm. and I was like okay all right I mean I'm not a special snowflake here I'm a human being just like all the humans what works what the proper diet should work for all of us right Hmm. so maybe what they taught me in med school, that maybe that's not the proper human diet. So I, like we were saying before we went live, I, I picked my head up out of my little lane and I started looking around going, well, what's everybody else recommending? What's everybody else doing? Because this ain't working for me. And so I read a book by Mark Sisson called The Primal Blueprint. I read a book by Lauren Cordain called The Paleo Diet. And I found an old tattered copy of uh, Dr. Robert Atkins' Diet Revolution for 50 cents at a rummage sale. And all three of those books recommended almost exactly the opposite of what I had been recommending to patients for probably the first four or five years of my medical practice. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, I mean, I'm not going to recommend this to patients because I'm pretty sure there's no research that backs any of this up, but I am going to try it on myself. And I think many good doctors, their first guinea pig is usually themselves. They try Mm -hmm. it out and just see what it does. And so you could call what I first started doing probably a a low-carb, paleo primal Atkins hybrid, right? And so immediately, I started to lose weight. And so what I did effectively is I cut my carbohydrate intake way down. I cut all the soft drinks and fruit juices and processed carbs out completely. And I was Mm -hmm. still eating, you know, kind of some paleo-approved carbs. But I probably honestly cut my carbohydrate intake in half, if not by a little more. Stopped being afraid of red meat, started eating lots of meat, eggs. I would eat you know, six eggs and six pieces of bacon for breakfast, that sort of thing. So I didn't limit my portions at all, and I didn't calorie restrict at all. I I still ate until I was full. And so immediately, I started to lose pounds. Immediately, my A1C started to go down. Hmm. And at the same time, I was still looking around. I was still reading, trying to figure all this stuff out. And that's when I first started reading about the ketogenic diet. And at that time, I considered it to be very experimental, very faddish, you know, kind of a medical grade diet suitable only for just a very few people with severe intractable seizure disorders or maybe morbid obesity, right? Mm. And so I thought, well, heck, it won't hurt to, to try it, you know? And so all my adult life, I'd had severe reflux. I'm talking about 10 out of 10 heartburn pain. When the Nexium drug rep came with Nexium samples. My patients didn't get the Nexium samples. I got those. Okay. And I took two a day for years. I would take two a day plus oh. a, I'd throw in a Tums or a Rolaid here and there when, it, when I had breakthrough. Well, I noticed after just a month of a keto diet, my heartburn was 80% better. And so I went from taking two Nexium a day plus the scattered Tums to taking two or three Tums a month and no Nexium at all, which, and you know yourself, Doc, that taking Nexium every day, is just asking for long-term medical problems because your stomach acid is very acidic for a reason. Mm -hmm. And if your stomach acid is not acid, then you're not digesting and breaking down the stuff you need for your bones, your muscles, you increase your risk of infections, all kinds of bad things, dementia, osteoporosis. And so I was very happy I could get off the Nexium. Then I started recommending the ketogenic diet to my most morbidly obese patients. At that time, I had no idea that keto would do everything that it'll do. And we can talk about that later. I just was using it as a one to a three-month weight loss hack for people who literally were about to go and get scheduled for bariatric surgery. Hmm. I'm like, what do they got to lose? It's not going to kill them for a month or two to do keto. And maybe they'll lose enough weight that then they can not have to have this barbaric surgery. And if anybody's ever watched a video about bariatric surgery, it is very barbaric. I mean, they literally chop out portions of your gastrointestinal system that you need and they throw them in the garbage. And then you are forever a modified human for the rest of your life. It's not good at all if you can avoid it, right? And so they would come back at their one month and three month follow-ups and say, Doc, this diet's amazing. I've lost 10, 20, 30 pounds in a month, two or three. But also, I've noticed my heartburn's better. I'm like, hmm, that's weird. Or my knee pain's better. I was scheduled to have a knee replacement surgery, but I called the guy and told him I postponed it. I said, I'll call you back when it starts hurting again. And when I first started hearing these other non-scale benefits of the ketogenic diet for a few months, I didn't see the pattern. But the more I read and the more I followed people on social media and the more patients I would put on keto, I kept hearing this, my heartburn's gone, my psoriasis is better, my arthritis is better, my energy level's better. I mean, you know, as a doc, if you hear one person say, oh, you're the best doctor in the world, you you saved my life. You're like, yeah, yeah, okay, whatever, right? Hmm. But when you've had 10 patients who you put on the same diet, say, hey, my heartburn's gone. Does this diet make heartburn better? At that point, you're like, what the hell's going on here, right? Wow what is this? This is weird. And so then I started finding on social media, ketogenic groups on Facebook, you know, the keto sphere on Twitter. And there are Facebook groups of people who've been doing keto for a decade. And there were hundreds of people saying my arthritis pain is gone. My reflux is gone. My rosacea is completely gone. My psoriasis is 90% better. I haven't had a a multiple sclerosis flare-up in seven years on keto. Just unheard of, just unimaginable positive benefits, right? Mm -hmm. And so at that point, I lowered my criteria from my patients who were just morbidly obese. I I lowered it down to any patient who's obese or heavier. I'm going to put them on keto. And that's when the floodgates really opened. There's no telling how many hundreds of people, because at the peak of my practice, I had a patient panel of probably 10,000 because I was in a small poor county surrounded by small poor counties and it was an hour and a half drive to the nearest metropolitan area. Mm-hmm. And so once you kind of get known as being a good doc in an area like that, that's where everybody goes. Mm-hmm. And I was a doc that I would only see you every, every six months cause I had such a huge patient panel. I couldn't be seeing you every month or every three months. So I always expect the patients to kind of, you know, part of this is your responsibility. I'm your doctor, but this is your life. So you've got to take some responsibility here. Yeah. And so then I had this flood of people, hundreds of people coming back in saying, my eczema has gone. Does keto do that? My gout, I haven't had a flare up of gout in eight months. And I used to have one every month. Does keto do that? And so at that point, I was like overwhelmed with these people telling me that not only did I lose 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 pounds, but also I had the following non-scale victories as well. And it became almost laughable. I'm like, what is keto, magic? I mean, does it does it make everything better? And was somewhere around in there when I kind of had the epiphany. What we're doing here is there's nothing magical about keto. There's nothing magical about a low carb diet. What we're doing is we're removing all of the slow poisons that are part of the standard American and Canadian diet. And it's not, it's not like I'm adding some magic potion. I'm just telling these people, hey, stop poisoning yourself and all of your symptoms of poisoning will get better. And when you look at it, look at it that way, you're like, oh, so all of these, almost all of these chronic medical conditions that we all suffer from, that our doctor tells us, we don't know what causes it. It's just chronic and progressive. Here, take this pill. And and when you come back in six months, I'll add another pill and a shot. But when you change your paradigm and you think, no, There's a proper human diet that human beings should be eating, and it should consist of lots of meat, whether that's seafood or red meat or or white meat or whatever, and a little bit of veg, but human beings are not, we're not designed to eat grains. We're not designed to eat sugar every single day of our life. We're not designed to eat vegetable oils that have only been for sale for the last 90 years. Those things are slow inflammatory poisons to the human system. And they cause all these things that I thought were chronic progressive diseases like eczema psoriasis and, you know, all the autoimmune stuff, obesity, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, fatty liver. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, no, we're, we're poisoning ourselves with the food that we buy at the grocery store, especially the food we buy from the middle of the supermarket. And so I, for a while, I talked to all my patients about it. I called it the outer wall diet. I want you to only buy things on the outer wall of the, the store, never go in the center of the store. And I hadn't figured it out at that time, but I did know if you eat from the center of the store, you're going to be fat and sick. And even if you're not fat, if you're blessed with good genetics and you're still skinny, you're still going to be a type two diabetic and have fatty liver, even though you're still skinny, if mm-hmm. you eat from the middle of the store. And so there's no telling how many, hundreds of hours of podcasts I've listened to and YouTube videos I've watched. And I mean, I've got a bookshelf back here full of well over a hundred books that I've read about nutrition in human beings, ranging all the way from the latest fab diet. I read them all. Mm -hmm. And so I've got Dr. Greger's book. I've got Joel Farman's book. I've got the China study. I've read all of them. Mm -hmm. And and all the way over to the other end of books about paleoanthropological nutrition. What did we eat a hundred thousand years ago? How do we know how much of this, that and the other did we eat back then until I I really feel like I've got a handle on this. Now, if you're eating sugars and grains and vegetable oils and any meaningful amount on a daily basis, those act in the way as they act as slow inflammatory poisons Mm -hmm. to some part of your physiology. And it manifests in different people as different things. And so, you might have a vitiligo and type 2 diabetes and, and be obese. I might have uh, rosacea and heartburn and knee pain and type 2 diabetes. You see? And so uh, the difference in our, our DNA makes us express the slow poisoning in a different way. But nonetheless, there the fact sits. We are slowly poisoning ourselves with the inflammatory modern American and Canadian diet.
0: Wow. Wow. Can I mean, You just completely threw down there. There's so much to unpack there. But what I love is the fact that, you know, you were experiencing, you were listening to what doctors and not only doctors, but like nutritionists were recommending for what we should be using to optimize our diet, right? Like exercise, like not high intensity exercise, but jogging. And you saw that it wasn't working. And I just really appreciate the fact that you were willing to look outside the box and say like, Hey, what is people around me? Who's the patients and the people that are benefiting from different approaches? And I mean, personally, I I haven't gone keto. I haven't gone low carb, but I've seen it. I've seen the benefits in my colleagues. I've seen it in the patients with the autoimmune diseases, thyroid disease, vitiligo, whatever it might be. And the things turn around. And I just, what always baffled me though, Ken, is like, why isn't more of this mainstream? Do you think it's like understanding? Do you think it's a lack of evidence? Do you think it's a fear that it's, as you mentioned earlier, like when you started learning about keto, you were like, this is some crazy ass shit. Like maybe this is for people that, you know, just have seizure disorders. Like what is it that is
1: holding us back? Well, I think it's a, it's a multifactorial problem, which as you know, are always the hardest to solve. Part of it is that back in the 50s and 60s, it became the medical fashion or the medical trend to believe that a high cholesterol, high saturated fat diet contributed to heart disease. Mm. And I'll go ahead and say this now to set that up. Big food manufacturers, they can make the biggest profit off foods that are made of sugar, grains, and vegetable oils. Like you can make anything from a piece of bread to a, a pizza crust, to a tortilla wrap, to a donut, Anything, you can make anything that's shelf-stable, your ingredients are super cheap, your markup is a 1,000% profit, and it sits on the shelf for two years without spoiling. Mm. So obviously, that's the perfect model for big food manufacturers is, is to make everything out of those three ingredients. Well, just so happens those three ingredients are friendly to the fad theory or hypothesis that eating lots of saturated fat and eating cholesterol increased your risk of heart attack and stroke. And so they went to town making all of these low-fat, cholesterol-free things that were basically just different combinations and different ratios of sugar, grains, and uh, vegetable seed oils. So then it became not only unfashionable in medicine to say, hey, I think human beings have been eating fatty meat for 200,000 years. How is it now magically bad for us? Not only did that become unfashionable, but that became a quick way to lose your tenure were mm. to never be published again and so all the doctors quickly understood oh i need to be anti-fat i need to be anti-cholesterol if i want to get my paper published or if i want to get tenure at this big university it's now considered a conspiracy theory to think that human beings should eat fatty meat mm. so doctors and researchers they stopped talking about that and they definitely stopped researching it but just imagine back in 1975 if you went to the chairman of your department and said, hey, I want to do this research study. I want to put 50 guys on a high fat red meat diet and then the other people on just a standard American diet. And I want to see who does better. Imagine what would your chairman have said? What are you? What are you some kind of serial killer? What's wrong with you? Get out of my office. No, we're not doing that study. And so a lot of people say, well, where's the research showing keto safe and healthy? Well, there's not any because it would have, you literally would have lost your position at academy or university if you hadn't even suggested such a study. So all that together, plus big pharmaceutical corporations, they make lots of money selling pills that are to be taken daily or injections that are to be taken daily for the management of chronic progressive medical diseases. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of the perfect storm. We had this stupid fad hypothesis that eating fat was bad for you. And then we had big food saying, hey, we can make huge markups, making stuff out of sugar, seed oils and grains. And then you had big pharma saying, hey, you know, we don't really want to cure type two diabetes. We just want to manage it. Mm -hmm. Because well, our profits are much, much better if we manage chronic diseases than if we reverse them. Because when you reverse a chronic disease, you just heal the patient. And the patient don't need the doctor or the pharmaceutical corporation no more.
2: Hmm.
1: So that's not a good business model, right? So, you, so you've got all these billion-dollar industries, and you've got all these researchers and doctors who are afraid to say, hey, maybe eating lots of whole grains not good for human beings. And so we've been stuck in this rut since the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, and thank goodness for social media because it, it's one of the ways that we're able to discover each other. I'm in Tennessee, you're in Canada, but we're talking, right? Mm-hmm. And we're both saying, yeah, I've seen the same thing in my patients and in my friends. This works. And, you know, doctors, we're supposed to follow evidence based medicine. Mm-hmm. But you know as well as I do that EBM stopped standing for evidence based medicine probably a decade ago. Now it stands for eminence based medicine. So whoever is the biggest professor at the biggest university, whatever their opinion is, and it didn't have to be backed up by any randomized control trial research. It just has to be, you know, Dr. Willard at Harvard or Dr. whoever at, at UCLA. Then that's that's it. That's EBM now. And that's mm-hmm. that's just the way it is. It's not right. It's not scientific, but that's currently kind of the regime that we're practicing under. And we've got to just work around that. And the way I work around that is by talking directly to patients, both in, in person, remotely, and then on social media. Yeah, it really
0: is the beauty of of social media and to be able to reach out to so many people. And just to echo what you're saying about evidence-based medicine, like like some studies, you know, for it to be evidence are difficult to produce and might not get backed up. And, you know, there's still some value in in what we're seeing in front of us, you know, and I think we just sometimes just have to, to be willing to, you know, think outside the box or just once again, see what's in front of us and the patient that's in front of us and and see what's benefiting them. Absolutely. You know, and just to clarify, Ken, cause your story, once again, I keep going back to it. Like you were 297, right? Yeah. And like, let's just really clarify like for yourself, even what the turnaround was like, say for example, now, like whether it's your blood work, whether it's your, how much you weigh now, like, How transformative really was it?
1: Yeah, so I hang out at about 228 now, up or down a pound or two, but that's my new set point. My A1C is in the the low fives. Mm. And so then I kind of missed part of the story. So after a few years of keto, I went carnivore, which is the Mm. ultimate low carb diet. It's as low carb as you can get. And after a month of being on carnivore, my heartburn, which had been 80% better on keto is now gone. I have no heartburn and to anybody who's ever had 10 of 10 reflux pain you know what a big deal that is to say I have no heartburn pain I haven't taken anything for heartburn in three years probably hmm. I just don't need it anymore I never have heartburn I had a knee injury between high school and college and tore out my ACL and back when I was 35 36 it hurt every day. I'd get up in the morning, it was stiff. If I tried to jog, it was just painful. And I thought it was from the old injury, right? That's what any doctor would think. I damaged cartilage. I, you know, the ligaments still loose. but now at 51, I can play basketball or sprint. I can do whatever. I can do deadlifts with 300 pounds. My knee never hurts.
2: Mm. So
1: tell me what, what is that? If that's not, I mean, it sounds miraculous, right? But it's not. The reason my knee hurt is because I was poisoning my knee. The reason my heartburn was so severe, I was poisoning my epithelial cells in my gastrointestinal system. It all makes sense now. Looking back, I was just, I was literally drinking and eating poison, not poison that was deadly enough to kill me quickly. You know, I could, I could probably live to be 60, 70 and not have been on five or six pills and an injection and have to go for an infusion every three months. But I don't take any medication now. Mm-hmm. I weigh less now than I weighed in my early thirties and I'm 51. Mm. I could definitely, as a 51 year old, I could go back in time and kick my 31 year old's ass. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> old man's
0: strength. That, old man's strength.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: <laughs> That's amazing. And in terms of your patients too, like, cause you were, you were talking about these morbidly obese patients that were about to be, get their bariatric surgery. Because this is not my world. I've only heard anecdotally that you've seen patients come up the, off their hi- antihypertensives. You see them come off their diabetic meds. Like, what kind of timelines were you experiencing for your patients?
1: Weeks to months, and that's a, that was another really weird thing, Doc, that would happen when I was first recommending keto to my patients. You know, most of my obese patients are also going to have hypertension. It's very, very common. And so they'd be on two medications for hypertension. Maybe one of them was a combo. So technically they're on three different medications. And they would come back in a month. They'd lost 10 pounds. Their blood sugar was better. And they'd say, Doc, I don't think this keto is good for me. And I would say, why? They'd say, well, every time I stand up, I get lightheaded. And I feel like I'm going to pass out. And then I would look down at their charts and their vital signs on check-in. Their blood pressure was 90 over 60. Mm. And I'm like, well, we better stop one of your blood pressure medicines. (laughs) And it literally took me five or six times before I I thought is keto lowering their blood pressure. That can't be, that is no way. And then also they hadn't lost enough total pounds for me to really say, Oh, the weight loss caused the hypotension. You see what Mm -hmm. I'm saying? Yeah. They maybe lost five, 10 pounds, been doing this three weeks and I was having to stop one of their blood pressure medications. Back then I didn't understand hyperinsulinemia and insulin resistance and how that, that is the main driver. For hypertension. It's not salt. It's not saturated fat. Those things have nothing to do with your blood pressure if you're eating a low-carb diet. Mm. And so I would have to stop their blood pressure. And at first I was really skittish, like, oh, maybe, maybe if people have high blood pressure, I shouldn't put them on keto because it makes their blood pressure go dangerously low. And then I said, Hey, dumbass, they're on three blood pressure medicines. Maybe you could stop a blood pressure medicine. So it was kind of there where my de-prescribing began. And you haven't done this yet. You're going to love it because being a de-prescribing physician is a hundred times more fun than being the doc that that starts people on a new pill every time they come to the doctor. That was drudgery. I was frustrated. I was bored. I wasn't helping anybody. You know, we went into medicine to save people and to make people be better and feel better. And all my patients were getting fatter and sicker until I started recommending this diet. But that was so funny. Looking back now, I was I was like, ooh, keto must be dangerous for people with high blood pressure because they're having these severe blood pressure dips. Mm. And I'm like, dummy, you can stop a blood pressure pill now. That's a good thing.
0: Yep, yep.
1: <laughs> Ken, did
0: you find also, um, what about the buy-in? This is the other thing I was. Curious about, so like, like the buy-in from the medical community, we talked about the resistance and the uphill battle there, but what about the patients? Like, was it a scenario where they're seeing it amongst their friends and colleagues where they're seeing improvements so they, they're eager to start? Or was there like, hey, what is going on here? I've never heard of this thing. How was that perspective?
1: Yeah, well, you got to remember something. They had already seen it in me. I was morbidly obese. And so when I walked into the exam room, the button on my shirt right over my belly button was in danger of popping at any second, putting out an eye, Mm. you see. But now they see me and I've literally transformed in front of their eyes. And so typically they wouldn't even talk about their chief complaint. They'd be like, dang, doc, you look good. What have you been doing? Mm. And then when I would recommend to a patient do keto, and they lost all that weight and also stopped taking four different pills. Their mom and their dad and their brother and their sister and their next door neighbor and their best friend, they all saw that too. And so then all of a sudden, they were wanting to come see Dr. Barry and say, hey, what is this diet? Is this some kind of pill or something? I'm like, no, no, it ain't no pill. Let me tell you, this is what you eat and this is what you don't eat. And that's it. And a lot of, a lot of patients initially were very worried about it. They're like, you want me to eat as much eggs and red meat as I want? And I would say, yes. And they'd be like, that's going to raise my cholesterol. And i will be like, I'm the damn doctor here. I'm telling you, that's what worked for me. And then they would look down at my belly, and that button that was no longer in danger of putting out their eye again, and they would go, well, yeah, it worked for you, and it worked for Uncle Joe. Yeah, okay, I'll give it, I'll try. I said, just try it for a month. Try it for three months. It ain't gonna kill you in a month. Mm. And they'd be like, no, you're right. Nothing gonna kill me in a month. So then they would do it for a month. And then when they came back, the question would always be, Doc, can I do this diet for another month? And I'd be like, Yeah, yeah, you can do it for another <laughs> month. Because at that point, I'd been I'd been keto for over a year. So I knew I didn't die. All my lab work was perfect, except my total cholesterol was 350 and my LDL was 250. Mm. But other than that, Everything else was perfection. My HDL was very high. My triglycerides are very low. My hemoglobin A1C was gorgeous. My C-peptide, which is a proxy marker for insulin had went from very high all the way back to normal. Then just how I felt, I, it's hard to describe that because it sounds like some kind of fad diet testimonial. Mm-hmm. It changed my life. But literally I was beginning to think about doing other things besides medicine because it was so frustrating and I mm-hmm. felt so miserable but after this change, when I changed from being a fat doc to a healthy doc, and I changed from being a prescribing doc to a de-prescribing doc, all of a sudden, I loved it again. It's like, dude, this rocks. I can't wait to get to the clinic.
0: The other good point you bring up, too, is when you see it in your doc, because think about how many docs are, I don't know how to say this correctly, that are fat, they're fat. Okay. Yeah. They're obese. <laughs> Thank you. <Yeah.
2: laughs>
0: They're obese, you know, and they're giving these dietary advice or whatever, but yep. Yep. you see the power in your own prescriber throwing down, losing this, this weight, feeling better, more energy. There's a lot of power there for yes. the patients. Cause the reason I'm I'm ragging on this so much is because as we talked about before, we're in the heights of COVID right now. Like we're, you know, I, I should actually check on how you guys are doing, but you know. We know what the risk factors are, hypertensive, obesity, type 2 diabetes, and we're not talking about it, like in the media, we're not talking about it collectively saying like, hey, this is an opportunity to reverse these things. And as you said, in weeks or months, and a lot of these patients, and so like, to me, it's like, you know, what are the barriers? Is it, you know, it's us, it's uh, the scientific community at some point. Is it going to be the patient? What can we do to really bring this home and say, hey, guys, this is one of many tools you could be using to getting healthy. And so, yeah, it's good to kind of hammer out some of these issues and barriers and and tying into some of the like your book, Two Lies My Doctor Told Me, which, guys, you got to pick up. We'll be plugging that in the show notes. But some of that has to do with some of the the myths, right? Like, yep. you know, like, the for example, cholesterol, like we touched on that a bit. And maybe you want to you want to throw down a bit on some of the myths around cholesterol.
1: Yeah. So your body makes about 3000 milligrams of cholesterol every day. Mm -hmm. The average egg yolk has about 150 milligrams of cholesterol in it. And so, I mean, all the listeners know, they can remember how many times did they say, oh, eggs are good for you. Oh no, wait, eggs are bad for you. Mm -hmm. Oh no, wait, they're good. You can have one a week. Oh, well, you can have one a day. Oh no, wait, eggs are bad for you right the reason we kept getting that conflicting story is because all of the research that they were quoting was epidemiology research none of it was randomized control research and so you might do a study one time and it show one thing and next time show another and a lot of people got frustrated and said you know what the hell with this i'm just going to eat the eggs well and i'm glad right mm-hmm. and so the whole thing was they believed in their hearts the researchers and the doctors and the dietitians believed in their hearts that cholesterol was dangerous, eating it was dangerous, having high cholesterol was dangerous. But the problem is, is when you go back and look at all the the meaningful research with a mindset like you and I have now, there are actually three very large randomized controlled trials in human beings that that were years long. The Minnesota Coronary Study, Mm -hmm. there was a study down in Australia and another one, and I talk about them in a YouTube video, These were randomized controlled trials where they literally controlled what the people ate. And so they took half the people and didn't give them any saturated fat. They replaced saturated fat with linoleic acid, which is a plant fat, like from canola oil or corn oil or soybean oil. And then the other half, they let them keep eating their egg egg yolks and their butter and their, their meat fat. And these studies went on for years. And then when they crunched the numbers, they found that the people who they had just let eat saturated fat Actually, live longer, mm. had less plaque buildup in their arteries, and had way less cancer than the people who they had put on the vegetable oil, thinking that that was the right thing to do. Now, again, you you harken back to what I said earlier. You imagine if you were the researcher and you just done this seven year long study and you just found that oh, saturated fats good for you and linoleic acid's bad for you. What are you going to do with that information? You going to publish that? You going to take that back to your chairman? No. So these huge studies, one of them wound up it didn't get published. very For 30 years. Yeah. Right? And so they found the the microfish tapes of one of them in a in a guy's basement who had the researcher had died and he never published the full study because he would have lost his tenure. His mm. his colleagues would have laughed at him. It showed that saturated fat's good for you. It protects you against cancer. It protects you against coronary artery plaqueing and it decreases your risk of heart attack and stroke, and you live longer if you keep eating your egg yolks and butter and meat fat. The His son remembered, oh, yeah, I think there's some old computer tape down in the basement. And sure enough, the researcher went down there, and there was all the data from the study. And so they were able to figure out a way to translate that onto you know, our modern computers and crunched the numbers, and sure enough, if he'd have published that back then, it would have been a nuclear bomb hmm. in nutrition and medicine because it showed that saturated fat is good for human beings.
2: Hmm.
0: And, I mean, just think about the scary thing, though, is like 30 years burying that data. That's life's affected multiple. That's right. That's
1: so that's, scary. Yeah, that's why I started this whole social media thing. Because I was I was learning all this, and I was applying it to my patients in the clinic. And my sweet wife, Nisha, one day, I came home bitching about the American Heart Association or something. And she said, you know what you should do? You should make a YouTube video. And I was like, that's stupid. I'm a board-certified doctor. I'm not making no YouTube video, right? And she said, how many people did you see in the clinic today? I said, oh, 30, 40, I don't know. She said, do you know if you made a YouTube video, you could help 3,000? Yep. And then I had to say what every husband dreads saying, honey, you're right. (laughs) And I made a YouTube video and I've been doing that ever since. But yeah, that's it. That's the whole reason that I do the social media thing is because if we sit around and wait for the American Diabetes Association and the AHA and the AMA and, and the, you know, associated agencies up in Canada, if we wait for them to all hold a joint press conference and say, hey guys, for the last 50 years, We've been dead wrong about saturated fat, about vegetable oils, about wheat. We've been wrong about all that. We're sorry. You should go back to eating lots of meat and a little bit of veg because that is the proper human diet. How many grandmothers and grandfathers would die between now and when that press conference is held? Mm. You see my point? How many brothers and sisters would we lose waiting for the the academics to get their shit together and come out and tell us, Hey, we've been wrong this whole time. My tenure and my entire academic reputation is based on error. Everything I've ever published is basically useless in the field of human nutrition. I mean, what professor wants to say that nobody, and they're not going to say that. And so we're going to have to basically wait for all the old guys to retire or die. And then new guys come in and the new guys will be more, more accepting of a new, hypothesis. And then maybe we'll get some change at the academic level. But I gave up on the academic level because I had grandparents dying every day from being poisoned by the standard American diet.
0: Ken, if you think about the process from an academic point of view, it's like, okay, so the study has to be published. There has to be the RCT or what, what have you, years to do. you will have the evidence there. And that's not enough. You right. still have to have that knowledge translated. Like in my ICU world, you have studies that are 10 years old and it still shit ain't changing. Do you know what I'm saying? So like it's, we have to ask ourselves, is this enough? As you said, to me, there's a tick, like we should act like there's urgency here. And this is why COVID is doing, this is a like, I don't want to sound insensitive, but part of the benefit of COVID is that we are, you know, looking at ways to expedite things. Like, you know, the like we're talking about the vaccine, how quickly that's coming up, but like, You know, stuff that we could do to save lives now needs to come up to the forefront. And this is exactly the reason why we're doing this. The other reason or the other area we try and focus on is like young docs, because docs, like as you mentioned, you saw 30 or 40 people in a day or whatever. Right. Like a doc that buys in. That's a multiplier. That's a extreme multiplier. Right. You know, that's another target area, I think, to really try and establish some change. But using the conventional academic route with this kind of stuff will take too long and too many people will suffer.
1: Yes. Without a doubt. Yep. And so that I made it my entire mission to reach out to the people, to ignore Harvard and Yale and Princeton, just ignore them, not even try to change their mind. I don't care. I don't give a damn what they think. I'm going to try to help you and your mama, and your daddy, and your neighbor. And then you're going to go tell other people. Look at, and every time you go to the, a restaurant or wherever, people are going to be like, oh my God, look at you. You look great. What have mm-hmm. you been doing? And that word of mouth is way more powerful. Mm-hmm. And let me just say for, for young healthcare providers out there, I didn't just randomly pick keto. I explained a little bit earlier, I had seen hundreds and hundreds of anecdotal reports of blood pressure getting better, type 2 diabetes going away, type 1 diabetics having an A1C of 5.5, which is unheard of for a type 1, right? And so if a doctor sees one anecdotal case of something weird happen, you don't change your practice based on that. That would be insane. When you see 10 cases, uh, 10 anecdotal cases of something working, like keto uh, reverse their hypertension, at that point, you're like, what the heck? Then you start doing some extra reading, some research, you start looking around. But when you've seen, I mean, what's the number? All you young healthcare providers, mid-level, nurse practitioner, PA, MD, DO, what's the number of anecdotal reports you would have to see before you went? I think I'm going to start recommending this to my patients because not a single person's had a bad complication. And I've had 400 people now reverse their type 2 diabetes with this diet with no, no negative outcomes whatsoever. Hmm. What's the anecdotal number? What's your trigger number, right? And for me, it was when it was in the hundreds, I was like, I mean, why would I not recommend this to my most metabolically ill patients? Hmm. They're going to die in a few years anyway. And as you know, as an ICU doc, dying ain't the worst thing that can happen. There are right. way worse things than death.
2: Yeah,
1: 100%. Yeah.
0: That's... <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, People don't know. People who are not in
1: healthcare, they don't always realize there are things at the nursing home and in the ICU that are way worse than death. And so if if I could use this case series, that's what this needs to be called. Although unpublished, I had witnessed it firsthand. That was my trigger for me to start recommending this as a therapeutic option for people with metabolic disease. And almost all the metabolic diseases stem from insulin resistance, hyperinsulinemia, and chronic inappropriate inflammation. Mm. And when you take care of those three things, all these other chronic conditions that docs thought they were just going to have to manage for their entire practice career, all of a sudden start going away. And it feels like magic, but it's not.
0: Yeah. And it's a good point. I maybe should have mentioned this earlier. Like a lot of these foods, as you mentioned, like the seed oils, grains, in our history as human beings are relatively new. You know what I mean? Like they're relatively newly introduced. So it's not shocking that react poorly to them. You know, like I think when you think about the novelty, relatively speaking, you know, it makes sense that way.
1: Oh, and I think that's a big part of it. And so back in 1910, when Crisco started to sell cottonseed oil as Crisco, Somebody at that point should have said, you know, cottonseed oil was previously a it was first a waste product of cotton mm. and then we used it as a lubricant, but now you're wanting to feed it to humans? You know what? Let's hold off on that until you've got some good randomized controlled trials of a year or two showing that cottonseed oil is safe for human consumption. They didn't do that. They, back then you could just put whatever on the market including Coca-Cola with cocaine in it. That was yep. on the market back in 1910, right? And so human beings have literally only been eating vegetable oils like canola oil, cottonseed oil, which we don't, they don't feed us that much anymore. Now it's soybean oil, canola oil, corn oil, uh, safflower, and sunflower. Those are the big vegetable oils. We've only been eating those things for 90 years. And we've been on this planet as Homo sapiens sapiens for over 200,000 years. And during that entire 200,000 years, we've been eating as much fatty meat as we could get our hands on, whether it was seafood or red meat. But for the last 90 years, you're going to tell us we should eat mostly vegetable oils, which there's never been a single long-term randomized controlled trial showing that they're safe for human consumption. They're made by Mm -hmm. billion-dollar corporations. There's never been any studies showing that they're safe, but yet they are in literally every product in the center of the grocery store you explain that to me
0: wow wow no it's like like you said you know it's it's just it's scary to know how much like i don't want to say the man the enterprise could really push the agenda and you know for the bottom dollar you know and not for the betterment of all of us it's just it makes me i'm already skeptical but it makes me you know even more skeptical when you hear stories like that it's hard one thing i I did want to touch get your opinion on too is especially in your book lies my doctor told me sunlight and vitamin d and the reason i want to touch on this is it's getting more juice when we're talking about covid you know like how vitamin d levels are low vitamin d levels are associated with poor outcomes so just want to get your thoughts on sun and vitamin d
1: yeah and so that's another favorite topic of mine I don't think we know yet whether it's the low vitamin D levels that are the risk factor or if the low vitamin D levels are just a proxy marker for whatever else it is that the sun does for us that we don't know yet. Because again, imagine back if you were a researcher back in 1970 and you went to your chairman and said, hey, I want to do a study where I let 50 people get the darkest tan they can possibly get. And then I'm going to keep the other 50 people out of the sun completely. What would your chairman have said about that? Get the hell out of here. You're a crazy person. You're gonna make people lay in the sun and get a tan. You're gonna give them all skin cancer. So yes, definitely getting sun, you're gonna raise your vitamin D level. But some people can't get enough sun at their latitude. Like you, my friend, with your skin tone, you could lay out naked all day in Canada. You're never gonna get enough vitamin D from the Mm -hmm. sun. Only way you ever gonna get enough is if you move close to the equator, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas me with my redneck self, I could probably get enough sun, even in Canada, to get enough vitamin D, mm. right? So some people, I think, do need a vitamin D supplement, but I, I just made a YouTube video probably a month ago about all the benefits we get from the sun. Mm. And it, it actually increases nitric oxide, it decreases inflammation, it raises vitamin D. Certainly, it does all kinds of different things for the human body. And then plus, any, any doctor who's ever taken care of a patient with a virus for a hundred years, we've known that viruses, bacteria, and fungi—they all hate the sunlight, right? Hmm. All viruses, all microbes hate direct sunlight. So, even without knowing all the particulars of this apparently novel coronavirus, we we know by implication of every other virus that's ever been studied, this virus is not going to do well in direct sunlight. Duh and so should we should we have you know let the kids go back to school and have class outside you could do that for maybe another month in canada right before it got too cold but yeah sunlight's definitely going to decrease your risk of contracting this and then when they were first coming out with the guidelines oh you have to you know you can't go we're going to close the beaches i was like what the hell i mean and this was coming from virologists i'm like I mean, I can understand closing down the bar and the cafeteria right. and, the, and the, you know, the whatever, but the beach, the park where people are literally 50 feet apart and in direct sunlight, you think that's a risk factor? And it was at that point that I, I, I made a couple of videos about COVID and one of them got demonetized because I disagreed with the WHO. You got what, sorry? Yeah, I disagreed with the World Health Organization. Oh, I got you. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I haven't been talking about it much because it's literally on both sides of the argument. It's just gotten completely irrational and emotional. And I just don't feel like I can do much good talking about it, but I totally agree with you getting the sunlight sunlight mm-hmm. is going to, is going to strengthen your immune system. Number one, but number two, all microbes hate direct sunlight. This is mm-hmm. known.
0: Yeah. I mean, my point is that too, is like when you look at some interventions that have like little like side effects, little downside. Like, why not? You know, similar to getting healthier, improving your diet. Why not getting some sunlight? Why not getting outside, getting some, going to go having more walks after your meal? Why not? Like all these things have such little downside to no downside. And this is why I think we we need to be preaching this.
1: No, I totally agree. But you understand what I'm saying about the current atmosphere, because if you got on Twitter and said, Hey, you can slash your risk of contracting coronavirus by getting direct sunlight for thirty minutes a day, by eating a diet that's going to lower your levels of chronic inflammation and lower your insulin levels and lower your blood sugar. All those things make your innate immune system stronger hmm. and make the virus weaker. If you said that, you would get attacked from both sides. Yeah, you know, and so it's like it's almost like I don't even. I'm not even going to talk about it.
0: I hear you, kid. Like it's not a. S- I don't know what happened to uh, our medical community, to society, but we can't have civil discourse. We can't. It's not safe. You can't. You can't make calls, and it's tough. Because I mean, I know this is going totally offside, but one of my biggest motivations for talking about the secondary outcomes of COVID, for example, when we were in lockdown, you know, I have three young sons, and when I heard about the increased child abuse that was happening because of lockdown, I was like. We need to think about things, man. We need to bring up these issues so we could address them. Yep. But like, you weren't allowed to say anything negative about lockdown. Like, it was scary. It yeah. still is scary, to be honest with you. But yeah, once again, any, like, for us to just have a conversation of common things that might reduce your risk or likely to reduce your risk, I think, you know, we have a duty to do that. We really do. I agree. Oh, man.
1: I agree, and it's not like we're trying to charge people to be in the sun. Exactly. It's not like we're making money off telling people eat a diet that that decreases inflammation and decreases your blood sugar. Yeah, we're not. It's not like we're getting an FDA approved medication that we can charge a thousand dollars a month for. We're saying, to the best of my professional knowledge, I think this will probably reduce your risk. Yeah. And when did that become an inflammatory thing for a doctor to say?
0: Yeah, hey, it's it's funny. Like you, people. Locally, they've been making some some claims on social media and, and not that I necessarily like I don't agree with what th- this uh, doc was saying. But, yeah, they got college complaints. People are like saying on social media, like get rid of our license. And, and, you know, even if you don't disagree, we have to have a safe environment for discourse. We have Absolutely. to because then we don't address some of the most important issues. It's. I don't know. It's, this is, to me, COVID has been scary. Yeah. Not necessarily, like, obviously the virus, but just how we are trying to manage and address it. It's. I agree. It's tough. I'm totally cognizant of the time. And I just want to, number one, thank you for this unbelievable conversation. I, I really, like, I feel like we're cut from the same cloth. I one agree. day, if we're able to have a beer together in the same area, I think this is... Uh, Something that we gotta do, because I just I really admire how you just will voice what you're what you're thinking, saying the right things, saying what needs to be said despite what other people might say. And and I'm telling you, Ken, I know deep in my my heart, you've been saving lives by having this approach. So this is why we wanted you on solving healthcare. And I should give you a chance. Where can people connect with you, my friend?
1: Ah, so I've got the, the book, Why is My Doctor Told Me, which yes. is available at all bookstores. There's also an audible. So if you've got ADD like me, you can do something else while you listen to the book. Yeah. Right? I've got a website, drberry.com, drberry.com. And uh, I've got a little YouTube channel. If you just search Dr. Berry on YouTube, you should find me. I got a little Facebook page. If you search Dr. Berry, you should find me. And then I'm on all social media. I'm on all of them because... Like I said earlier, my job is to save as many grandmothers and grandfathers, as many moms and dads, as many brothers and sisters as I can possibly save. That's my job as a doctor. That's my duty as a doctor. If I don't make a YouTube video tomorrow, I kind of feel like I'm not keeping my oath.
0: And Ken is being ultra modest, guys. Like When he's saying a little YouTube channel or a little Facebook page, it's monstrous the followers are insane and it's because of the message and it's because of how he's affecting lives. So jump on that train link up. We'll have it all on the show notes. Ken, you're a beast. And I'm so grateful for having you on the show, my
1: friend. My pleasure, doctor. I'll, I'll talk to you again one day when we can have that beer. Absolutely.
0: Tell me that wasn't awesome. Tell me that wasn't full of knowledge. Tell me that wasn't all about changing the boogie. Ken Berry, I love that episode, guys. That was fun. If you have any comments or questions, leave them at quadcast99 at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube at Quadcast. If you missed our online summit, low-carbon ketogenic approaches to health, you can still purchase that. Use the links in the show notes. That was awesome. Ivor Joy, Dr. Paul Mason, full of game, yo. And guys, y'all stay healthy. Thanks for listening. If you don't mind, leave a five-star rating or review on iTunes or wherever you listen to the show. It all helps. It helps with the visibility of the show because we're going to continue to change the boogie, y'all. That's what we're trying to do. So thank you so much for listening and stay safe.